Welcome to Pocketry Presents, a podcast for emerging and aspiring poets. I'm Indrani Pereira, founder of Pocketry, the home of unheard voices. I'm coming to you from the lands and waterways of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging, and I acknowledge that this is stolen land and sovereignty has never been ceded. In this episode of Pocketry Presents, I'm interviewing an established poet about their experience in entering competitions and winning awards. Joining me today from Andangara country is Dr. Mark Trudinik. Dr. Mark Trudinik is a celebrated poet, essayist and teacher. Mark is a father of five and he lives with his partner Jody Williams, their spaniel Dante and their cat Sappho in Gandangara country along the Winch Caribbean southwest of Sydney. Mark's work has been widely translated into Chinese, Spanish, French, Italian and German. In 2019, he spent a month in Beijing as a guest of the China Writers International Writers Programme. In 2021, Mark won a prestigious new poetry prize, the Milau River International Poetry Prize for his poem, Before the Day. A collection of his poems and essays appeared in translation in China in 2022. Welcome back, Mark. Glad you can join me again for this second episode. It's a privilege, Indrani, and it's great fun. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get into asking you some questions about winning awards because you've won some big awards. And I want to take you back in time. Do you remember the first prize that you won for your poetry? Yeah, I think the first prize I won was the Gwen Harwood. Don't ask me which year exactly, I think. But it was very early on. Prizes have been important for me. And I think you've heard me say this because they've been important for me. I recommend them to others. I think I felt less nervous, oddly enough, about uh, putting work anonymously up for uh, consideration in a prize than, than I did about putting my name on something and sending out to journals. So I don't believe I'd sent a single poem to a single journal before I won my first prize. And there was a stage there early on, 2004, 2005 and six, where I had won more prizes than I had poems published. <laughs> so that'll show you I wasn't really doing the usual thing, which was peddling my poems to magazines. I think several things were my fortune. I didn't get to writing poetry until I was already 40. And I had already by that stage learned a lot about writing. So my little red writing book was already out or, or nearly out. Uh, and I had uh, a bunch of published essays and I'd won some prose prizes. So the idea of the prize uh, as a route, as a thing that you might do, uh, was was on my, on my mind. But I can tell you, the Gwen Harwood competition is run by Island Magazine. It's still out there, a wonderful, lovely poet. So I was very honoured to win it. And it was a bit of a surprise to me and others. Like, clearly, I was writing enough poetry to have work to send out. But I really, I was still, I think, writing my doctorate. So I was, I still had my head in uh, prose, uh, lyric prose. In fact, it was because I was thinking about lyricism in prose that I stumbled sideways into poetry writing, really. That's how that happened. And then poetry was most of what wanted to happen. The poem was called The Child and Time, and it was free verse, rather surprisingly for me. Uh, it had different forms some different architectures within it, like a piece of prose poetry for section two or something. I forget the numbers, but mostly it was kind of free verse. And it was really about being in the thick of having young children and, you know, disturbed sleep and in a marriage, which at that stage was delightful and 
uh, you know, the kids. And I, I think I, I have a line in there that when something like mostly these nights, when I wish for a line, what I get is a boy who won't fall asleep, something like that. So it's that kind of thing. And I'm pushing my son, carrying one son around on my chest in one of those baby Bjorn things and pushing my other one on the stroller. It's just, it's an observation of domesticity. But because I'm me and because I was in the space of thinking about ecological writing, there's quite, there are uh, arrow casarias in there. There are eucalypts and birds and a contemplation of time. That's what you know, I guess one of the questions behind the poem was, what does it mean to be a parent these days to bring children into a world that likely won't outlast them by all that much? And, you know, the just the the joy and mystery of the way that the tree outside the window is a species that's been on the planet for millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. And this child in your arms has been in the world for, you know, days, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a joyous kind of sentimental kind of poem. That was the first one shortly after the, I entered the ABR. Actually, no, I entered the ABR prize first, and I suppose it's my first shortlisting, but I didn't. You asked which one I won. I didn't win oh. the ABR. That was my first. And I remember entering that specifically to make myself finish poetry because I'd been scribbling. And I didn't know the answers to the questions then that you asked me in the previous episode about how you know when you're finished. So I didn't I didn't know when I was finished, so I never finished. And I saw the uh, ABR. So that was it's now called the Peter Porter, but it was then called the ABR, Australian Book Review Prize. I think that was only its second or maybe third year. And I I, I read about the prize and it had it had constraints. That's what I, one thing I like about competitions. They tell you how many lines max. They sometimes give you some guidance about theme, the way that the ACU, the Australian Catholic University Prize does. Uh, and so those constraints I've always found in a busy life, even in a busy creative life, useful on the whole. I, I quite I quite enjoy commissions. I don't much love writing prompts uh, in classes, but I do I do like somebody or getting an idea myself about something that's got a kind of solid sense of something. Uh, about what it's about, but also length and deadline critically. Like I knew I had to get something in and I read uh, in the semiotics of the ABR, now the Peter Porter, I read some idea about formalism because uh, Peter Rose was quite, and his fellow judges then were quite keen to promote more craft in poetry. And I thought that's my kind of thing. And you know what? That one, Indrani, was the very opposite of the free verse. It was a villanelle. And for some reason... So I'm hanging on to those poems. You know, I've not published either of them in any of my four collections. I put them both in the new book because it it is about beginning, really, in a way. You've read the 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 Villanelle, I think, because I shared it. It's it was written in response to being at Ubia uh, up in Kakadu. It's called Ubia, and it had I'd read about the Villanelle, and you know, I that one I had a line when I was writing my prose, I think, or in my journal, I realized I had a line that went, "The world is not the place you thought you knew." Or it was a place on earth is what it makes of you. One of one or other of those two lines. And of course, their iambic pentameter, and I recognized the, the rhythm of them. And I thought, well, there are a number of poetic forms that use those. I'm going to try a villanelle. I don't know quite why I decided on the villanelle, but I loved it. I've not written another one since. <laughs> They're fiendishly difficult. I've got, you know, a couple of half-finished villanelles. They are very hard. Yes. I lucked in. I lucked in because I like I lucked into the line, and both of those lines bear repetition uh, quite well. And I also had a really solid moment, you know, like that 
exquisite, like epithanic moment, really, at Ubiya, which it always is because it's sacred country, but because it's also radically glamorous and it's on the edge of the, the floodplain. And literally the day I was there, the wet came. You could see it was the last day of the drive and you could see the wet coming in. In fact, the driver came up and said, we've got to get out of here because it's going to flood. So I, I had... You could do a lot of things with that content, but it fitted quite well. So those were the first couple. And shortly after that, I won the Blake and I won the, the Newcastle Poetry Prize. And the Newcastle, as you know, I'd entered that once before and I had shortlisted the first time I put something in. I'd more or less cobbled together. Well, not exactly cobbled, but it wasn't written as a, a long poem. I'd, I'd written a number of shorter poems all set in Tasmania when I was uh, down there writing the Red Book, actually, and walking a lot. And I thought, oh, I shortlisted in, you know, that's the biggest Australian prize or one of and was the biggest then. So the next year I sat down to write a poem for the competition, which I've rarely done. But I, I did think I'll keep this one going. And it's a poem called Eclogues which is in Fire Diary, and it's Quintrain's with the step-down line. And I think I'm, I was trialling that form for the very first time, which I'd found in uh, recently in uh, Charles Wright's work with the Longish Line. A mentor, uh, teacher, friend in the States, James Galvin, had seen some of my early writing, including maybe The Child in Time, actually, Ch A Child in Time and said, I think you need to read some Charles Wright. That's how I discovered Charles Wright, a fellow very senior po poetry teacher, saw something in my work that he thought might uh, need some schooling, might need some instruction in form. He didn't tell me why, but I knew why when I read the works. I just felt like a bird that had found its native habitat. But Eclogues was my first attempt to sustain a sequence of, of uh, long-lined uh, quintrains, and it's 200 lines in Newcastle, so I got, I got to keep it going. And I had some ideas in my head and we had a major weather event and, you know, that's what that poem records. So those were the first, the first few. I can remember them pretty well. That's phenomenal. And how did it feel to have your work recognised by those major awards? Well, it's lovely. It's just, it's just plain lovely, you know, in, in uh, not many people never get to get that. Like think of, think of Vincent van Gogh, think of Emily Dickinson, the two famous examples, people who uh, are now would be among the best known artists anywhere in the world by, by most people. And yet in their lifetime were known by nobody. So they never got to get even much local recognition. It never stopped me running on a high octane combination of faith and skepticism like you know i think a friend of mine henrik once said to me mark you've got the right ego for the work that you do you've got a, a sense of self-belief but you never believe your own bull for too long and also you're reasonably robust in the face of criticism which is going to come i'm not sure about that i hate criticism <laughs> but, uh, but you know you tie you tied it out i said in, a, in an interview recently when someone asked about the kind of attention that you might get from one of the really major prizes that I, I won later. And I said, trust me, even the biggest poetry prize in the world doesn't give you the kind of recognition that means you're going to be recognized on the street or you're going to start thinking that you're some kind of, you know, celebrity. So you're well protected against all of that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, mostly the thing I'd mostly say, Andrani, is that the very first prize was maybe the most important because or even the ABR, they, they said to me, you're, you're a poet, you can do this. And until that time, I'd had a lot of doubt, and many people do, about naming themselves poet or uh, whether they can sustain a poetic practice, because it is a very dark art. 
Well, you know, it kind of is and it isn't. But there's a there's a lot of a, there's a lot to be known. Uh, there's a lot that you can fall short in relation to in poetry. That's the kind of when you get anxious about it. That's the thing that you think about. So to get the recognition was uh, really important for my self belief. I, th I think uh, as a poet, and it really sparked. You can see from my work if you look back how much work I made over the the ensuing five years and and ten, ten years, but. When the bigger prizes came, like there's also prize money with these things. And actually, that's a that's a part of it. Like the money for the Montreal back in the day uh, was 50000 when I won it. Now, you can do a lot of damage with $50,000. Mostly prizes just help a little bit with the school fees or, you know, the renovations or just, as I said, when I won the Montreal, they said, you know, what are you going to do with it? And I said, poets live in debt. This will pay some down. And it's true. We all know that that's the truth. That's where most of that went. It just disappeared into the mortgage and uh, allowed, bought me a little bit of extra time that year for some more travel and, and writing. But um, the other thing about the money is that for me, in my Methodist boy, Protestant kind of work ethic, when someone pays me money for something, it gets it up the list, not in terms of merit, but but in terms of I get it done. And so I felt like a professional because I was earning money for the time that I was investing. So there was that as with the, the monetary uh, recognition for poetry, which is I know is an odd thing to say in a way, because it's in many ways the purest of the arts and you can't be motivated by that. I don't think that's a motivation. But actually, when it came, it sent me a signal, I think, the work that one could make, if I can put it that way, in the world had the kind of value that uh, might actually even have some money attached to it. Mm. Yes, I think out of all of the art forms, you know, poetry is the least money-making one you could get into, really. So it's definitely for the love that you do do it. But having your work sort of recognised, it must be a wonderful feeling. And how do you decide which poems you'll enter into competitions? Over the years, I've been blessed. Once I got begun, I ended up with quite a lot of poetry. So mostly mostly when when competitions come along, we'll talk in a minute about which ones won targets, I suppose, but you see them coming up. I soon learned that there were these competitions in the world and in Australia, and I have since that time targeted the majors in a way, like the ones that I thought were, were worth it, because you could keep yourself busy full-time just entering all the competitions that there are to be honest so I thought I'll just enter the ones that have got decent prize money because that'll make me get up in the morning and uh, so how do I choose the, the poems in each case I look to see what the conditions of the poem are of the prize are I should say and sometimes it's completely open but normally you've got some constraints so length is an issue and so for example the I've just put something in the um, Newcastle again well that's long in fact I didn't have anything of anything like that length I've put all my long poems in Walking Underwater so I had next to no really long ones left but the ACU and one of the uh, UK prizes I've never done any good in but I'm going to keep trying is <laughs> the Poetry London prize and it's got decent prize money like five thousand pounds and it closed over the weekend too and it had uh, constraints quite like the ACU so I considered both of those prizes side by side trying to make on hunch and an assessment of the judging panel where you know what what that is I tried to choose which poems I thought would fit plus the ACU had a specific theme as I think you probably know of resilience and th so themes help the ACU's uh, great for that but if you don't have a theme specified then it will be line length a kind of rough assessment. I used to bother with this, but I, I do pay a bit of attention to who the judges are. 
sometimes even that makes me not enter uh, <laughs> uh, or enter more in that competition than the other one because I think I've got a better or a worse chance because uh, it's it's about tribes there, I think. Like there are there are kinds of poetry and I, I, I don't know how you'd characterise mine, but it's not language poetry. I write sentences that make sense. I ask big questions, but I like sentences that I, I don't have much truck with. A poetry that leaves most of the sense-making out and I like punctuation and I like something to be said. And there are schools of poetry that are completely opposed to all of my views on all of those things. And when those charges are in position, I'm probably not going to have much chance. So I don't uh, I don't bother. I mean, there is luck in all these things. I think it was my luck to have Andrew Motion as the judge of the Montreal in the first year. I just... But I got to tell you, I ended the Montreal that year because my friend Debbie Lim said, Mark, you got to enter this thing. I hadn't even paid any attention to it. And she and uh, some other friends have been tracking it and said, you know, you've got a good record in competition. She should probably put something in. So right at the last minute, I chose things. And that had a, I think it's got a 40 line limit. I'm actually judging it again this next year. So I'd better get that down. But I think it's got 40 lines. And the poem that ended up winning, I nearly didn't enter because it had been sitting in my files a little bit unfinished. And I'd been neglecting it and it had a very daggy title like Eagle Creek or something and something made me pull it out because I think I thought, oh, it's a, it's a pretty good poem in a way and it's a mid-Atlantic, like it's a it's a poem set uh, away from home in in, in North America. Uh, I didn't concentrate on who the judge was at all. I didn't give it a moment's thought in that case. I just pulled the poem out. I thought, give it a better title. I read it again and it's got, the, it's got a line about walking underwater in the poem and I thought, that's the title. And I counted the lines and lo and behold, it's exactly 40. So that one was kind of fated, uh, I think. I, I had several shortlisted that year, five, I think, a lot longlisted and two in the in the final uh, 20. And you know what? I got I to gotta tell you this. On the week, in the days before the prize was announced, I had a dream, Indrani. And in my dream, the phone rang and it was a Canadian. And they said, uh, we need to tell you that you've you've won the Montreal Prize. But the poem they told me I'd won it for was The Kingfisher, the other one, which in certain kind of ways, other people have said this to me, is a better poem. Like it's a it's it's a kind of poem that's just all like you can't change anything in it. It's the right length. It's got the right balance of levity and gravity and all of that stuff. But I think in the end it's not long enough because it's actually it's a long line poem, but it wasn't long enough. But isn't that remarkable? Like I, I never dream prophetically like that. But the phone rang and they told me I'd won for this other one. So that when the phone did ring, uh, it was actually uh, the phone was I was at something at the kids' school learning how to use how to help them use their iPads and the phones ring and then Marie, my then wife, called to say it's Canada. You better come out and take the phone call. So I took the call. I had to ask them. Well, they said, congratulations, you won. And I said, yeah, but for which poem? Because I'm still in the dream. <laughs> I thought I'd run it for the other one. So you do you do think about lots of kind of things. Robert Gray, the Australian poet, when I, when I once asked him, when I was putting my first book together, I, I said, Robert, how do you decide what goes in and what doesn't? And he said, put your best poems in. <laughs> I always bear that in mind, like part, partly that's not helpful, but it is kind of helpful because I think we're inclined to, I think that makes me make technical judgments rather than sentimental ones. Because, mm. you know, there are poems one is fond of and actually they're not probably as good for other people. Uh, they don't resonate with other people. They're locked in their privacy. They're more important to you because of 
how you where you were at the time or whatever and we can sometimes put those into competitions or into books uh, when we'd be better off i mean who cares but you know for um you'd have more of a chance in a competition if you didn't let your heart rule over your head i suppose is what i'm trying to say i've judged competitions and they're very exacting stages you know you get so many entries that sadly it's hard to cut much slack to a poem that that falls short in technical craft based you know if it's not well made if it's got more than a couple of cliches in it for me as a judge that's the end of it for the competition even though in real life i think that's actually quite important in competitions because i think the prize winning poems ought to represent excellence of all kinds not just conformity with fashion or or the taste of the judges I find that objectionable, really. I think we need to be doing our best to bracket off our taste and trying to choose poems that uh, are excellent in every way. And that includes politics and spirituality and originality and everything. But I've had several occasions uh, judging prizes where, sadly, it was too easy to not consider a poem that was 75% there because the other ones that are 100% there have to be ahead in the list so choose your best work <laughs> yeah that's really good advice not the one you like the best but the poem that is the best the one that is the best and i just say one other thing quickly on that i always improve the poems as i'm putting it in into the competition there's something for me about that knowledge that they're going to be read and they're going to be read exactingly by some fussy uh, readers makes me do the extra work. I always am a bit shocked by how many things I find uh, I can improve. So that's another reason for going in competitions, I think. It will make you work your uh, language harder. Mm. That's a very good tip for um, poets who are wanting yeah. to get into um, entering competitions. I wanted to ask you, if you share your poems with anyone before you send in, do you ever say, hey, do you think this is good enough to go in? Or is that just something you decide yourself? I largely decide myself. Like, I, I don't think I'd shared, oh, maybe that's wrong. I don't think I'd shared Walking Underwater. And I, I'm pretty sure I hadn't shared the other ones I've mentioned. But these days, simply because as time, you know, we're talking about 20 years ago nearly now, as time goes by, nearly everyone I I know closely as a fellow poet or artist or maker of some kind. And it just comes up in conversation on email that will tend to share uh, work. And I've learned to value that a great deal. Sometimes I seek somebody's advice out, particularly mostly I'm doing my sharing as an act of kind of friendship and correspondence in a way. But yeah, I have, you can get yourself into a bit of trouble with that. I've, I've had the rather the galling experience of having shared a poem with somebody who then went on to be the judge of the, this major Australian prize and he refused to like I know, I know he felt that that was the best poem that he had there but he couldn't give it the mm. uh, the prize because he had an attack of uh, of kind of that is a difficult that is a difficult ethical question but I would have decided it the other way to him if I knew I have in fact had to preside over making decisions about poems that I've known from friends or, or mentees you can deal with it his problem was he was the only judge if you've got a fellow judge I normally give the decision I say listen I like this but I have to declare an interest you know tell me mm -hmm. wow. uh, tell me what it is but so yes but sharing on the whole is a really terrific thing to do reciprocally I normally do it on that basis you know like what have you been writing in Drani show me something and I'll send you something uh something back choose wisely you don't want on the one hand somebody just saying 
fabulous and you kind of know they haven't really looked at it or engaged with it. On the other hand, I don't in particular need someone to dump all over it, but I, I would like somebody to read the poem I send the way that I read other people's poems, which is to compliment, not banally, but you know, if I've been moved by it, I'll try to say why and how, and then I'll touch on some areas where I was lost or didn't follow or found it jarring or and try and give that kind of response. And I've got a few f fellow poets who are in that kind of, uh, who play that role for me, I guess. It is very important, I think, if you're a writer, because it's a solitary pursuit, having that group around you that you can share your writing with and get inspired by also, you know, your fellow writers too. I think it's really important. I want to ask you what it's like when you don't win an award for something that you've entered. Well, that, that's the experience that you get most of the time, of course. And even though I've won some, that's the bulk of my experience too. I often, people may not know, but I often enter quite, or have in the past, entered quite a lot of poems, uh, you know, sometimes six or eight. And so most of your poems are going to be overlooked. I've had the experience, though, of entering poems in other competitions later and then getting up in another one. So you always have to know that there's luck or there's chance involved in every good decision and every one that doesn't go your way as well. Keep faith. You have to find a way, and I guess I have, to answer your question of keeping faith with most of those poems. I'm struggling to think of anything I've completely abandoned. Like I've entered some poems in competitions upwards of three or four times. And sometimes I've won out or, you know, I've shortlisted or won something later. That happened with um, the, car, the prize, the poem that won the Cardiff is called Margaret River Sestets. And I'd ended that, I'm pretty sure, in the ABR and in something else. I got nothing, although one of the judges of one of those prizes subsequently told me that I'd been just off the shortlist. So you think you've completely bombed. <laughs> And very often, so this is a good, this is my tip. Imagine that you haven't bombed. You were just off the shortlist. And had there been one other judge in the room, it would have turned out differently or whatever. So always keep faith with the poem, but always go back to it as well. I think it's worth considering the possibility that there was something about the poem that was less well achieved than you might make it. So I've often gone back and taken another look at something afterwards. Um, it's hard. It's hard not. Like, I get distressed. You put a lot of work in. I, I remember I had a bad year last year with entering things until I won the Chinese prize that you mentioned at the end. And I look back on those poems now and you begin to wonder whether you're fooling yourself. But I, I didn't write much last year, but I did write five or six poems that I think are the best things I've I've written, and I don't buy that. That sounds silly when I say it, but it's it's poetry that if I read it, I'd be going, "This is good stuff," and this engages honestly with issues of importance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Nothing. I ended these, these several of those poems in several competitions last year. Nothing. We'll see what happens. They're all going to be in my in the book that you mentioned that it's coming out uh, at the beginning of next year. But I, I haven't lost faith either in the poems or in the competitions. I just think at a certain point, certain poets become very recognisable, although some of my colleagues who shall remain nameless keep on winning things and shortlisting. There's no reason to stop entering, but there is a bit of a sense that at a certain point one should stop, <laughs> give, give the others a chance. And certain poets writing, and I think I'm in that category, is fairly recognisable sometimes through my class chosen forms and all the things I teach in Drani. They tend to show up in my work. 
but it it could also sometimes I've, I think I've got a capacity and I recommend that people get something like this just to go whatever I'm not going to overanalyze it that's a risk you can overanalyze it and and you'll it's an unhappy experience just go I wrote the poem it wasn't my year like it wasn't my time write another one keep that one that you wrote put it in your next book do something else with it so never give up like keep keep pushing them out there I think there are stories in the literature of people who wrote poems that have gone on to be quite famous that have not found a home and not found a friend they couldn't buy a friend uh until they came out in a book or you know or whatever like you know Gatsby one of the great novels of all time everyone hated hated on Gatsby you know they more or less cancelled him and cancelled the book well look now you know so we must never we must never lose faith in ourselves and and in our work equally we should keep trying a little bit harder to stop plagiarizing ourselves as I as I said before too Oh, Mark, I think that's a fantastic point to end this episode with those fabulous words for aspiring poets to keep the faith. And thank you so much for joining me again and sharing your experience. Uh, it was fabulous to hear all of that and get a little bit of the behind the scenes because you've judged so many prizes as well. That was brilliant. Oh, good, Indrani. Well, thanks. You're doing a great job with these. It's an honour to share this time with you. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for listening. And in 2020, Mark has launched his online poetry class, sorry, his online poetry masterclass series, What the Light Tells. And for more information about how you can attend one of his masterclasses, visit www.marktrudinic.com. And to find out more about Pocketry, the home of unheard voices, visit www.pocketry.com.au and happy writing.